Welcome to a special To Be More series on violence in Baltimore. I'm your host, TJ Smith. During this series, you will hear from those impacted by violence, along with those in leadership tasked with making changes our city so desperately needs. Be sure to check out the other related podcasts in these series. That includes survivors who lost their children, the mayor of Baltimore, and the incoming state's attorney. Today, we are pleased to have with us Baltimore Police Commissioner Michael Harrison. The BPD is tasked with addressing the violence while adhering to the reforms of the consent decree and treading through the waters of politics. Good day, Mr. Commissioner, and thank you very much for joining us. Good morning to you, and uh, thank you for having me. It's great to see you again. Yes, always, always a pleasure to speak to you. And I had the pleasure of knowing you before you got to Baltimore, and I, um, I know your heart is in the right place, and you were hired by one mayor, and quickly it became a second mayor, and shortly thereafter a third mayor. I know a lot of people have to wonder, how has that been, coming here, moving your family here, setting up in Baltimore, thinking you were in for the long term with a mayor who was elected, and then boom, it changes, and you're on your third mayor already, and you've been here uh, just over three years? Well, first of all, I have said that and talked about that, but you're the first person to ever ask about it, so I, I greatly appreciate that. Um, it, it has been a challenge, but my answer to what I tell people, my answer to you is the commitment I made was to Baltimore and to the people of Baltimore and to the, the issues I came to work with others to help to address. I did not come to solve it on my own, but I came to be a partner and to bring lessons learned from a city who dealt with very similar issues and who that city is now once again dealing with it again as it has now risen to the number one place for murder in America. Um, once again, but so bringing lessons learned, my commitment was to the people of Baltimore, not to any one person. And what I have said is the person who brought me here is not the reason why I'm here. Mm. Uh, and so, yes, unlike the chiefs I talked to just last week as I was at a national, international chiefs of police conference in Dallas, you know, many of whom are working with a mayor who hired them or working with a mayor, uh, but very few, if any, have been with three mayors in three years. Uh, there are some mayors who've been with three chiefs in three years, mm -hmm. but not the other way around. So my wife and I are extremely committed. We always have been, and we continue to be committed, man. And so it's not about any one person. My loyalty certainly is to my appointing authority, but my, lo my real, real loyalty is to the commitment to the profession and my commitment to the work at hand, um, which I was hired to do. Yeah, and I, I mean, you've had to, or I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, have you gotten up in the morning a couple of times one day and said, man, I'm done. I'm done with this. This is too much. I mean, it, the the politics keep happening. You Again, you come here and then the election starts, and there was controversy even before you got here with the police chief's election. Yes. So, you know, you're part of that revolving door. Um, but you've been a sense of stability. However, it's been challenging. Have you ever just said, you know, I'm done with this. They can have the politics and they can have the stuff. Well, I, I have never uh, gotten up in the morning and said I'm done. I've never gone to sleep at night and said I'm done. You know, I'm a very spiritual person. I pray. It's where I get my strength. Instead of thinking about how what I'm doing can be easier, I ask God to give me strength. Mm-hmm for things that seem to get harder. Mm -hmm. I just ask for more strength. 
I can't get more time. You know, can't get more of the other stuff. Um, but I, I ask for strength to deal with what I have to deal with, and every day is a challenge. So, yes, I wake up uh, and get to work, and sometimes I'm frustrated. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm very, you know, I can be angry at, at the issues, at the politics. Um, and it's not just one set of politics. It's multiple politics. And so people have asked me, you know, what's it like? I say, well, it's, it's, it's multiple stakeholders, you know, the community is a stakeholder. My, you know, my boss the, the, is, is a stakeholder. He's my appointing authority. You know, the city council who represent, you know, various parts of the city. But we're in a consent decree. So the Department of Justice and the federal judge is a stakeholder. You know, you have business community. You have the faith community. And everybody has an interest. Those interests are not always aligned. They're competing and they are conflicting. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I have to ask and for strength and find ways to get personal and spiritual and emotional and professional strength to navigate that and deal with it. Uh, TJ, I just believe in doing the right thing for the right reason and, you know, speak the truth, do the right thing for the right reason, even when it is unpopular. I and, told, and very difficult. And very sense. difficult. Yeah. And I told a group of recruits just yesterday who graduated from the academy, as I tell every group, you know, right is always right, even when no one else is doing it. Wrong is always wrong, even when you see everyone else doing it. I, I believe in doing what's right for the, for the greater good, even when it is unpopular and sometimes against uh, popular political interest. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it earlier. We're also going to get into the consent decree, but uh, coming from New Orleans, that's the town you were speaking of that has unfortunately risen again to number one per capita. Um, that's a tough place that you came from. They have um, a lot of problems similar to what Baltimore has, poverty, pockets of poverty, and a lot of violence. Uh, but l- looking at the ebbs and flows, of course, with the storm of 20, 2005 there, we saw major reductions in crime over the years in New Orleans. Has, has it been unexpected here in Baltimore? Did you, did you anticipate maybe some changes over your tenures thus far that haven't yet taken place? Is it a tougher environment? Than well, you it's a tougher environment because it's bigger. Mm-hmm. It's more of it, and it has, uh, it has a lot of issues and challenges just like New Orleans. But let, let's remember, New Orleans was, you know, 80% of it was destroyed by consent decree in 2005, from October, well, Katrina, from, yeah. Katrina mm-hmm. from from uh, August 29th to the end of the year, the city was empty, mm-hmm. and the city was empty for for a long time. Now, people came back, and when honest people came back, criminals came back as well, and we we saw an insurgence of of crime, even violent crime. The difference is, New Orleans was rebuilt. You know, they built 33 brand new schools. We built all you know mm-hmm. new police stations, new fire stations, new infrastructure, new homes. And, and a lot of it was built. A lot of it that was uh, bad infrastructure was rebuilt, brand new, torn down and rebuilt. Baltimore has not had that. And so uh, there are a lot of issues that are at play that cause people to be pulled to war crime or pushed to war crime, things you know, poverty, education, addiction, mental illness, housing, conflict resolution. You know, a, a lot of that stuff was rebuilt by the city, by FEMA. That has not happened here. And, you know, we, we don't wish for a catastrophic event. Right. We don't, we never want that. 
there, the what we are doing now in Baltimore is exactly what Mayor Landrew did in New Orleans. He built a comprehensive strategy to deal with not just the strong enforcement for the violent offenders who were hell-bent on committing violent crime, but gave them a pathway away. It was called NOLA for Life, and incorporated in NOLA for Life was the group violence reduction strategy, which Mayor Scott is doing here. I have been talking about that since the day I landed. But it was the thing that caused New Orleans, at least in my four years, to see the reduction in violent crime. And in my last year, in 2018, murder went to a 30-year low. It hadn't been as low as it was until, since 1970. But that was the result of this comprehensive strategy. It was not, let me just be the first to say, it was not just policing. Mm -hmm. And I can't take all that credit. Although people in Baltimore say, well, I saw what you did in New Orleans. Well, what we did in New Orleans, I, I, I said and advocated for that to happen here. And it has happened. And now we're doing it. And now that we are, we're seeing success, at least where we're piloting it in the Western right. District. Yeah, we're going to get into that group violence reduction strategy. But I don't want to go too deep into New Orleans, yeah. but I think people who are listening and watching um, hear that and say, okay, they need new schools, they need new infrastructure, they need jobs, they need more housing. All of that happened in New Orleans, and now we're talking about them back at this number one spot. What's wrong with the sustainability? How did that happen? Because if we're talking about doing that in Baltimore, how do we sustain it? We don't want to be a blip yeah, on the radar. I, I, I can't really speak for New Orleans. What I can tell you is that uh, when we were in our group violence reduction strategy there, and we were arresting people on a state RICO charge. It was like a five-year sentence. Mm -hmm. Well, many of them are coming up or have surpassed that five-year sentence and have returned home. Whether they were rehabilitated or not remains the question. But it seems as though um, the country itself is moving back to, is moving toward, uh, uh, here's what enforcement really means. See, when people say enforcement, People just stop at policing. TG enforcement is the initial contact with police, then prosecutions to conviction, then incarceration to rehabilitation. All of that is the definition of enforcement. We only, uh, and people only want to talk about enforcement. And I get asked all the time, what is the, what, what is the police department doing? What are you doing? Why can't it, you stop it? And when is it going to turn around? But they're only asking the question to the police department. They're not questioning anybody else in that system. And so you have seen uh, progressive prosecutors change policies, not just here, but in many places. Mm -hmm. Some of that is the cause for it. But let's, let's, let's look at the real thing that has happened over the past two years. COVID hit, courts shut down, prosecutions came to a halt, which means indictments came to a halt, grand juries weren't allowed to convene. So much of that work came to a halt for 18 months to two years, not just here, but in most places. So what was, what the would-be criminal or the offender criminal out there on the street was seeing was nothing's happening. There's, there are no consequences. I can get away with this. And that happened right in the middle of the Baltimore Police Department building this wonderful new infrastructure, creating best practice policies, moving away from the old policing style that put us in a consent decree to this new community policing model, the guardian model, that's helping to build trust. But right in the middle of that, as we become better, now everything's shut down. And so what chiefs around um, and sheriffs around America are talking about is the lack of consequences. Either they don't exist 
or there's no fear of them mm-hmm. because they're not applied. And because of that, offenders are continuing to offend, and people who otherwise would not offend are starting to because they see that they can. Do you, I mean, do you think we, you know, it wasn't, you know, rainbows and unicorns prior to COVID. Do you think that we were starting to see glimpses through data that things were going to be trending in the right direction? I think, here's what I have to explain. Um, we become a better police department. We, we're improving in so many areas, in technology, in best practices, in management, in discipline, in, in all of the areas. The question people will want to ask is, why does that not translate to crime reduction? Well, when you talk about the crime numbers, and yes, we are very, very high. We're well, well, <coughs> well past the national average, excuse me. But it doesn't translate to that because those numbers represent people and people's decisions. And when people, we, we, it goes down when we convince people to make better decisions. So it really is about changing the thinking of the offender and the would-be offender through consequences, but through giving them a pathway away to a better life. That we decrease violence and murder in the city of Baltimore and in every city where it's done effectively. And so it's the heavy lift of changing people and the life conditions of people. Enforcement alone doesn't deter people from committing crime. Yes, we've got more guns off the street this year since any year in 2014, even when we had 600 more cops. Mm. We've made more arrests this year than last year. So we're doing more work. We're doing better work. We're doing it with less force, getting fewer complaints, paying out less litigation fees and lawsuits, and doing much better work. We're building trust. Clearance rates are, are, are high, not where we want them to be, but are higher than where they were last year and year before. There's more work to be done. But it doesn't translate to the offender deciding to say, well, I'm not going to do this because there's still two other parts of the criminal justice system that have to be a part of what we're doing to qualify good enforcement and to, to show the people what good enforcement and effective enforcement really looks like. And so it doesn't translate to a reduction because the conditions of the lives of the people who commit the crimes are not yet changing. People always thought police make that change. It's really the entire system. Well, um, that's a good segue because incoming state's attorney, Ivan Bates, has um, spoken similar language as you. Uh, what's your relationship like with uh, Mr. Bates, and um, is that true? I mean, are you all speaking a similar language as far as the accountability piece? Well, I think we are, and the answer to the question is already, even before he takes office, we have a good relationship. You know, I called him, we set a meeting up, and he and I had a lunch meeting here in the city just uh, a few short weeks ago. Very productive. He, you know, while while that was a private meeting in confidence, he laid out um, to me what his vision is for uh, for the prosecutor's office and the state's attorney's office and how he intends to manage going forward. I think what he laid out to me is perfectly aligned with where the police department is, where our mayor and our mayor's vision is, and all of us uh, who are in this crime fight, who are uh, committed to making Baltimore safer, who are committed to changing the conditions that cause people to commit crime in the very first place. I think he's perfectly aligned with that. So I want to start with um, something as we get deeper into what's happening every day. Um, a question that always goes around uh, social media, especially when some crime occurs, violent crime, uh, was September an outlier of a month where there were, I believe, 14 murders, um, if I'm correct, somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 or 14, which is completely 
opposite of what we've seen every month since uh, April of 2015. But what is the plan? People will say the plan isn't working. Uh, you'll hear that. What is the plan? What, what, can you break it down just a bit for people to understand what is the daily mission that officers are tasked to go out with and suppress violence? So, very good question. And, and many people I know ask you that. They ask me that as well. Um, so there, there's a lot to unpack there. There is what's called a people, versus, people strategy and a place-based strategy. In the people strategy, we're looking at violent offenders, we're looking at repeat offenders, and we're looking at people who are at high risk to be an offender. That is, people who are caught with guns, and we are arresting them, people who are with other people who have guns, people who are the victims of shooting and are the perpetrator, perpetrators of shooting, whether or not they were prosecuted or not. Those individuals are at the highest risk. TJ, 66% of people who are caught with a gun are 60% likely to be the victim of a shooting or the perpetrator of a shooting. If they're caught with a gun twice, they're 99% mm. likely to be the victim of a shooting or the perpetrator of a shooting or murder, meaning it's the same demographics. So we, we look at those individuals who are offenders, repeat offenders, and we are trying to make sure that, number one, we can give them a life and pathway away through the group violence reduction strategy. But for the cops on the street, when we see offenses, we are taking enforcement action. Once again, We've made, um, I think, over 2,000 gun seizures with over 1,300 gun arrests this year alone. We're not even out of October. And so we're going after the violent offenders. We're going after drug dealers. While there may be a policy of not arresting people with simple possession of drugs, we had to make protocols to align with that when that policy came out from our state's attorney. But we do go after drug dealers, and they have been being prosecuted. I have uh, verified that. Um, so we're going after them. People strategy. The most violent, the violent offenders, repeat offenders, drug dealers, drug organizations. We have covert investigations with all of our state and federal partners. Can't talk about that much, but, but those investigations are always ongoing, and we're constantly taking offenders off the street, individuals and groups. Place-based strategy. We're looking at places in the city that have historically have had violent crime to repeat itself in a particular location over time. When we first got in, we looked at where are the areas in the city where we know homicides, non-fatal shootings, and robberies have occurred historically. We found a number of places that made up 33% of all those crimes. They're called microzones. In some cities, they call them hotspots. Whatever the name is, it's called the place-based strategy. And then we're assigning patrol officers, district action team officers, to go to those areas. We started out with 133. We've reduced them because we've had some effect over the couple of years. Now they're down to about 85. Go to there three times during the shift. Now if, many, if multiple officers on a shift all take turns, go to a location, get out the car, engage with the, the residents, the business owners, the community members for about 15, 20 minutes and then leave and then you go back to patrol answering calls. And if multiple officers do that and do that in multiple areas, we can create an ecosystem of where we have high visibility and we think we can deter at least crimes of opportunity. Um, crimes of opportunity. And so that's the place-based strategy, which we've seen some success. We have to know where crimes are committed and we use data to inform us of that. So it's a data-driven and intelligence-driven approach. When you put data, uh, the place-based strategy with the people strategy, then executing the warrants 
that are backlogged and going after those offenders who are out there who have warrants for robbery, for shooting, for murder, for rape, for all violent crime, even the minor offenses that are not violent crime, picking those individuals up and having them to account. We arrest them, we have them to account. So together, that's the, that is the strategy. And then I lead the police department with a model called accountability-driven leadership. It's holding all the members of the department accountable, and if everybody performs to standard, then we can know that officers are performing well or they're not performing well, and that's at least a performance metric we can determine we need to improve in because it's not translating in seeing reductions or deterrence. And, but when it comes to murder, when it comes to non-fatal shooting, those are not crimes of opportunity. Those are crimes of premeditation and crimes of passion, meaning individuals will encounter one another, they will become in a heated confrontation that becomes violent and sometimes deadly because of gun violence. Or a perpetrator seeks out or preys on another person until they find them and take their violence out against them, neither of which can be predicted. Those are crimes of premeditation, crimes of passion. The others are crimes of opportunity, which police deterrence can have some effect on. Have, do you feel we, like we've seen um, a, a, a reduction? This is well beyond your time here. It's the same areas. Yes. It's, it's, you know, Western District is seeing a bit of a ebbs and flows where it's lower this year. And we can point to the GVRS, but it's the same areas. Carrollton Ridge, it's going to be violent there this year and next year. And this is beyond the police department, in my opinion, because the conditions there are horrible. So what data tells you that specifically looking at these particular areas, we're seeing reductions. Well, when we, like we're seeing a 33% reduction in homicide in the Western, I believe above 25% in non-fatal shootings because of the GVRS has been there now almost a year. And we want to scale that at some point in the very near future to somewhere else in the city that really needs it. But that is because we are affecting young men who are changing their lives and deciding I'm not going to participate in gun violence. So we, we, just, we really have people that are would-be murderers that say, all right, I'm going to get this job. We, we, we believe that those people exist. Yes, those people exist. And the MONSI, the Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Safety and Engagement, is leading the GVRS and with state partners at the state's attorney's office, the police department, MONSI, federal partners. We're working there, and it's not just deterrence, because we are taking down drug organizations and violent crime organizations, but there are also, there are also people who are changing their lives saying, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I'm going to accept your help and get on the right path. We did a call-in. You may remember what the call-in is, where we bring these young men into a room, and there, there are two messages given to them. One, a message of, we will stop you, or we will help you. You have to choose. And we had a very intimate conversation with those young men. And when they step up and accept our help, there's intense social services and wraparound services given to them. The goal is to change all the conditions in their lives so that they don't have to resort to that life of violence. So is, uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate because these are the questions that people are asking. Mm -hmm. I, the, the concept sounds good, but we're talking a hardened criminal who has a gun that they illegally acquired I'm thinking of killing somebody, but wow, there are options for me. I'm going to walk away from violence. 
But what people see and you hear almost daily in Baltimore is the city can't even handle these squeegee people on the corner. How, how do we reconcile our, our plan? And this is not a, just a police department. It's a holistic approach, mm-hmm. using that word. How do we reconcile we can get this hardened criminal with a gun, but we can't deal with the squeegee issue? Well, you know, that's a very, very nuanced issue. I have been part of this squeegee collaborative since, uh, since its inception after this horrible incident that happened on on Conway and Langston. It was Timothy Reynolds. So yeah. I've been a part of that. I've only missed two meetings. One, I was on vacation. One, I was at a police conference. Um, and it's, it is very nuanced because there are constitutional issues at play that have, um, that have caused us to think about how we enforcing, are we enforcing constitutionally and equitably. Think about this. It's not as easy or black and white as some would say. Just enforce the law. Brilliant attorneys and lawyers, police chiefs, mayors, have been doing this for now 40 years and have not been able to come up with a solution. So it is Only in Baltimore. (laughs) The constitutional issue only seems to be an issue in Baltimore. But So it has to be done equitably. And so we are working with the collaborative to figure out how to, number one, help the young men not want to do that, and number two, by providing everything they need, which are their life conditions need to be met and addressed. Number two, if and when we have to enforce, what does that enforcement look like? How is it done? What are the issues for adults versus minors? What are the issues when it comes to use of force or their resistance for a minor offense like squeegeeing if and when there's a police interaction? And all of that has to be worked out. Um, And so, yeah, we're working on that. But it's the same thing. They are doing that because they otherwise can't do what you and I can do. And so they have turned to that to satisfy their life conditions. And guess what? What they're asking is the only way I can not do this is if you pay me X amount of dollars, which is probably more than most people make, pay me every day and pay me in cash. And, And by the way, I'm going to wear what I want to wear. And I'm going to show up on them. And, and, and I think it's all of that. this city, you know, you know, sometimes kids, the ones that are kids, they have to be told what to do. They don't really have a word and a say in yes. what they're going to do. And I, I don't want to go way down the rabbit hole of the squeegee issue, uh, but it is an issue that it's a daily quality of life issue that a lot it of people is. are talking about. And it just seems like that issue, which, again, it's much it's bigger And I'll tell you candidly, I had an issue with the police having to go out there and guard or babysit them when we should have other agencies managing them. You know, if we want to move away from making it such a criminal issue, get your officers. Why your officers have to be involved in? Well, the officers are not are not babysitting uh, the, the the individuals who are out there squeegee working. We're out there to make sure other crimes because we had a homicide committed as a result of a squeegee incident, you know, I have to make sure at the request of all of the stakeholders who I talked to you about earlier um, and balance that, but I have to make sure crimes like damage to property, crimes like assaults, crimes like, you know, carrying a gun and assaulting Crimes like the squeegee people damaging property? Well, (laughs) them damaging property or motorists assaulting the squeegee workers. I have to make sure that those kind of crimes are not happening while we work to figure out how the city is going to deal 
deal with the holistic long term issue. And and you know, I get it that that's not really something that you have uh, carte blanche decision making on. I, I totally to, get I have that. to balance the priorities because with a with a manpower with a critical manpower shortage, mm-hmm. with the elevated need for police services and people counting on police to come deal with a lot of issues around the city, crime issues, balancing how we prevent serious crimes from happening at intersections across the city. I have to balance that. No, we don't, we we never want to consider ourselves babysitting any squeegeeing, but we're trying to prevent more serious crimes from happening. That's what a lot of people think. But I'll say this, the incoming state's attorney, um, he disagrees with the constitutionality and the judicial branch interprets the law and he believes that it can be prosecuted if necessary. So we'll see what happens. A few months, it could get a little bit different. With that, you brought up the um, staffing, and I asked the mayor this question as well. If you can walk us through GVRS from your uh, perspective, from the police department side, uh, how does that look on a daily basis? Again, right now, what are Western District uh, GVRS uh, group people doing right now? So it's broken up into a number of things. We have an enforcement team that's out there enforcing an investigative team who are investigating drug dealers and violent crime organizations and individuals who make up those organizations. And we've already taken two of those groups off the street through arrest. We're working on others. So there's enforcement, there's investigations, detectives who are doing investigations, there's outreach. There are people who, people, commission officers in the police department who are doing outreach to make sure we're delivering the message to these young men, look, put your guns down, don't do this. Let us help you. Here's how we can help you have a better life. And so we're doing that in partnership with the mayor's office, with the state's attorney. You know, we have probation and parole. We have everybody. We have social workers. We have everybody at the table in the Western District working together. So it really is a different mindset. It's not let's just go out and catch all the bad guys. It is let's go help the young people who want this help. We're going to bring it to them. We're not going to make them go get it. We're going to bring it to them. We're going to stay with them until we can really change their lives. But for some who don't want it, we'll have the weight, the total weight of the city, state, and federal government behind us to go after them and to, and to, to remove them uh, through whatever criminal investigation we can to catch them so that they can account. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you this, I'm a believer in GVRS. Um, again, it's different iterations of it that have come. But back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was a state-run program called Hotspots that later changed to CSAFE, which was Collaborative Supervision and Focused Enforcement. It's essentially the same type of concept yes. where all of the stakeholders work together to go after those most at risk, including those who were victims, because, you know, most victims, as you pointed out with the stats, are people who have been involved. So I'm a believer in the uh, process. But I will say it was very manpower um, intensive. So as we look to scale this and you talked about, you know, 600 less officers than 2014 and there's still struggles to keep up today. How are we going to be able to scale it? with the current manpower, just the police department side, but across the city, you well, know, that is, enough? A, that is a question that uh, between uh, our mayor's office, Monsi, the police department, those are conversations we have to have because we have, uh, we have lost manpower. And while we graduated a class of 14 yesterday, we started a class of 28 last week, 
before COVID, we were starting classes of 45. And we were graduating classes of 40. And so, yes, we have been shrinking. So we have to have conversations about not just how we scale GVRS, but how we staff all of our districts, which is why the redistricting project was such an important thing that hadn't happened in over 50 years. Now we can use appropriate data to do the appropriate staffing for districts. Some will get a little bit bigger, some will get a little bit smaller, but we have to figure out how to scale them while we scale GVRS, while we continue to shrink. We want to stop shrinking, first of all. And so recruiting and retention is a big, big thing. And we have a number of incentives that we've now put out to, number one, attract people to us and keep people with us. Uh, just really quickly, man, we created a $5,000 sign-on bonus for everybody coming. Now, that's, um, that's matching what most of the agencies around our state are doing. We have a $5,000 referral bonus for our current members. If they refer somebody, by the way, we are our best recruiters. So if they refer somebody and see them through hiring and through the academy, we'll give them $5,000. We have a $5,000 student loan debt assistance for all of our members, current members, and incoming members if they successfully complete the academy. That if they have student loan debt, <clears throat> they can demonstrate to us, we'll give them $5,000 if they apply it to that. $12,000 housing allowance, $1,000 a month for anyone who wants to live in the city, we'll give them that $12,000 to incentivize them and encourage them to live in our city. And for a current member who lives out the city and wants to come back, we will give it to them also. And for those who are beyond the 15-year mark for the referral bonus, it's $7,500, not $5,000, to incentivize our members to do that. So we're doing things other departments, whether small, medium, or large, sheriff or police, are just not doing around the state and around the country, for that matter, to recruit and retain good people in our police department because it's so critical. So while we're doing that to get our numbers back up, we have to be smart about how we scale because it's a zero-sum game. You're taking from somebody to give to somebody else. And so we, we will have that conversation. We know we have to do it. Uh, but I don't have the luxury of just one decision. I have them all. Yeah. Uh, well, well, I know a lot of people are wanting GVRS in their neighborhood, and that brings yes. me to Safe Streets. Um, I know Safe Streets sometimes is controversial. Last year, we lost three members of Safe Streets in violent incidents, um, and it's a high-risk environment that they work in. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, ha ha are you aware of a beef that they weren't able to mitigate, that they call the police department and say, we can't, this is about to get violent, we need you guys to interrupt. Well, first of all, let me tell you, the, their work is invaluable. We could, not, we could not survive if we didn't have it. We have to have that work, and we have to have those credible messengers and those violence interrupters doing what they do. Because they can do, and they can do what we can't. They can go places we can't. They can, in, they can meet with people and encourage them in a way that we cannot. Um, now, I do not have the, the specific answer to that because the model calls for them to have independence. Correct. It calls for them to have independence, and it calls for them to have street, what, what, what's termed as street credibility. Mm -hmm. by, by having too much cross-collaboration with police erodes their credibility. In the street, that is. Not with us, but in the street. So we have to make sure that that's done in a way that maintains their credibility. So what I know is that they have been successful in mitigating many beefs that could have turned violent. What I, because, but you'll never know 
all of it because it's, uh, it's impossible to know what didn't happen. And, and yes, there are some intangibles. However, they, there have to be examples. And I'm not asking you specifically for any examples, but the relationship, because that's another question that's been put out there because it's been a uh, part of, of, of the violence plan that we hear, Safe Streets. And I'm a supporter. But the question is, in situations, unless they have a 100% track record of mitigating a beef, where it's like they, these, these two are too far gone. Do they have some sort of liaison? And I get the independence to be able to get the information to police to ensure the violence doesn't happen because they can't, they can no longer handle it. Well, I will answer it this way. There are sometimes we know when that happens, when, when the, the feud or the beef is so strong that violence is likely to happen or retaliation is likely to happen, even though there are people trying to intervene and create interventions. We, there are sometimes we know that, and it's not that we know it from safe streets. I, I'm, I'm not saying that, but when it's that bad, we know it anyway because, you know, we, there are other methods of getting information that, that inform us, um, and we act on that. What I can say is that uh, our situation is uh, a, a bad situation. We have very, very high numbers. We have a lot of people committing violence, a lot of people victims of violence. It would be far worse if not for safe streets. And we need them. Scary to think. We, we need them to do that work. Somebody has to do it, and we need them to do that work. And I'm supportive of the program. Right. Uh, I want to jump into the consent decree real quick. Uh, we are uh, about five years in. Your former town, New Orleans, asked to get out of the consent decree. Could you see yourself asking that? And by the way, I did uh, ask the mayor to kind of give you a, a different job. Maybe you can oversee the consent decree type implementations being outside of the consent decree. Should we still be in the consent decree? I know you have to say at yes, the, but the, do you think we the, should still at be the in the moment? Yes. At the moment, yes. There, there comes a time, and, and I will say that uh, Judge Bredar mm -hmm. and the DOJ and the monitoring team are all working with the end goal of the department being out of the consent decree. But it's not frame, let's get out of the consent decree. It's frame, let's be in compliance, let's turn it into a great department. That's more important to create a good department than saying, let's just get out of the consent decree. And where are we on compliance? Because, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding of what the consent decree yeah. is. The street level is the consent decree is handcuffing officers. And Mayor Cantrell actually used those words um, when she asked to get out. This is the mayor of New Orleans. Where are we with compliance to get closer to that end goal? Well, let me, let me start by saying this, because this is very important. The consent decree doesn't handcuff officers. Michael Harrison is saying that to T.J. Smith on his, on his show, because the Constitution has not changed. No laws have changed. No rules have changed. Mm -hmm. We only want officers to do the job the right way, and the consent decree makes us document and prove that we have we're doing it the right way and not the wrong way. But no laws have changed. So an officer can do anything the Constitution allows the officer to do here and anywhere in the country. The, state, the laws in the state of Maryland and the city of Baltimore have not changed, nor have they changed in New Orleans, by the way. Right. It is the same. So the officers can do what the Constitution allows them to do. So it doesn't handcuff officers. What I will say is Baltimore Police Department is moving really fast and has made what's called significant progress, according to the judge in the DOJ. They've started making assessments 
of the paragraphs that need an action item done, and of the assessments made, 83% are in either full compliance or, or some level of some level of achieved compliance. Maybe not full, but some level. And there's more work to be done. I mean, yes, it's five years, and but I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. What we have to do is not stray away and not backslide and not resort back to tactics, techniques, and management that put us into this consent. And do you feel you have the discretion that you need um, under the consent decree to do what you need to do to handle an officer who shouldn't be fired uh, based on the infraction? Um, do you feel like you have that discretion right now? Well, I have that discretion. I absolutely, I absolutely have that discretion. But the consent decree doesn't determine whether or not I take a particular action on a particular thing. It's, it's do you have the infrastructure built, the systems of accountability built, to inform you of things so that you can prevent them to the extent you can? And do you have the infrastructure and systems of accountability built that when it happens, you respond appropriately when it does happen? And is that system fair, equitable, and constitution? constitutional? The answer is yes, we have that. And we're building it and making it better. It is not to, it, it, the consent decree does not mean an officer will never make a mistake again. It does not mean an officer will not do something wrong intentionally again. It means, can we, do we have systems to prevent it to the extent that we can? Yes. Do we have systems to inform us to respond appropriately when we find out? Yes. And when we find out that someone else knew and didn't respond appropriately, there's systems to deal with that and those people as well. That's what the consent decree is about building trust, at least in, in the regard of discipline. So um, switching gears again and hitting the ghost guns, the Polymer 80 is one, the, the built through pieces, but then the ones with the serial numbers scratched off effectively ghost guns, you can't really trace them, right? Uh, as big of an issue as that is, do you support any more legislation? Um, I, I've been pretty strong on mandatory minimums and I know, again, that's a bad word for some, but we're talking about for a violent crime. And possessing a gun in Baltimore City is pretty much a violent crime. It's a step away from murder. Do you think we need anything more to, to hold these offenders accountable that are putting this stuff together? That y'all are recovering at a record rate this year? At a record rate, 378 this year alone. In 2018, we seized nine. Are, are they more... Are they the polymer 80 type polymer, piece to most get of them are together? Polymer, polymer 80s, yes. Mm. And, you know, when we first saw, started seeing them in 2018, we only seized nine. Mm. So far this year, we've seen 378. It has grown exponentially every year uh, since we first started seeing them. And Isn't yes, that a level of intent, though? Isn't that a different a level, level of intent? Of intent? A, I'm a, going to get a gun that's untraceable it's a level because of I'm going to do something to ev evade law enforcement. And shouldn't we, we catch a person with that gun? They aren't going to shoot a deer in Carroll County. <laughs> it, they, they're going to do the same thing that someone with a, um, a legitimately purchased gun are, are doing when they're walking around with it on the street. You know, TJ, I've said this. Pete, you know, the decision to pull the trigger is not made when the trigger is pulled. The decision to pull the trigger is made when you put your hand on a gun and you decide to walk out of the door. You have because And you, illegally possess and it. And illegally possess it. Mm -hmm. That decision is already made. That's why we have to have... I don't use the term severity of consequences, although some do. I am with uh, swiftness and the certainty of consequences to which the criminal offender believes there are none, and the police, the police, depart, the police officers and me 
don't believe that there aren't any, and all the people don't fear them. And so we have to get to a point where we hold gun offenders, people who are illegally carrying guns, accountable. Once again, they, the demographics are the same between those who are illegally carrying guns and those who get shot and are the shooter of those crimes. Oh, I, I, I'll say it. Um, we need to lobby to uh, have a severe penalty for those possessing ghost guns, and the General yes. Assembly needs to get on it. And well, it, we have the, we we have the toughest, Maryland created, Maryland created a new law, which is one a ban on ghost guns, which is one of the toughest in the country for ghost guns. And look, yes, but there are no gun stores in the city of Baltimore. Guns are coming in from other parts of the state and other parts of the country. And we have people working on that in the department and assigned to ATF to help track those guns and those offenders down who are trafficking those guns. So it's a two-part problem. It's the prevalence of guns and the easy access to guns that are coming into the city by, by way of some criminal act intentionally to flood the city with guns because they end up in the hands of the wrong people, people who are prohibited and not supposed to have them, and young people who are certainly not supposed to have them, and people are using them in the wrong way. And to put a plug on it, though, it's the individuals who are, 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 are leaving parents childless. Uh, so... Yes. Just we have to deal with that. You know, as we come to a conclusion, I want to know what's been your biggest challenge. Well, TJ, you know, I don't have the luxury of just having one challenge. <laughs> I don't have the luxury of just what having one challenge. What is among your biggest challenges? And, and, and I don't, I don't know that there's a one, two, three. Sometimes they're all number one. But, um, you know, if I could envision a perfect way to fix all of the issues. It, it could not happen because as you open, and I'm glad you opened this way, um, we've had to do a reset. I've had to do two different resets. We did a reset when I was hired. There was another reset with the second mayor, and then there was an election, and we had to do another reset. And so after three and a half years, what people was, were expecting to see in year one just got started. And so it seems like we didn't, we're, we're now catching momentum, having momentum. We're seeing progress. The police department's getting better. We're seeing more community cooperation. People are feeling better, although it's not perfect, and let me be the first to admit we got a long way to go, but people are feeling a little bit better. But we, we have to do better in that regard as well. Um, the department has made many, many, many improvements. The thing that concerns me is the profession as a whole. People don't are, having, are not having an interest in the profession, so we're a shrinking department because of many issues, some of which are our own fault, that are causing people not to want to be members of our profession or members of this department. And so I have to deliver the same level of services at an excellent and professional level that I would have otherwise had to do with now with the Delta 420 more officers. I'm budget for 2606. We're right above 2100, uh, 2180, I believe, something like that. I have to do the same work with much fewer people, so it is a constant evolving, changing not of strategy, but of how we utilize our resources, of how we utilize our resources. We're still going after the violent people. We're still going after drug dealers. We're still taking guns off the street. We're still responding to people. We're still trying to help people have a better life. But we're constant, you know, I'm always concerned about the level of violence, especially the level of violence that is committed against police officers who are out there trying to help people. So being concerned about my officers being safe, concerned about the morale, of the officers, making sure that 
my people are coming to work every day with the right frame of mind and the right mindset to really go out there and serve and protect at a professional level. Um, whether people appreciate that or not, we have to do that. And then the, the politics, you know, navigating the politics. There are so many competing and conflicting interests, not just among outsiders and external people like the business community, faith community, academic community, but even inside even inside government sometimes, and, you know, we're in a consent decree. So there's a constant, there's a constant navigation of how do we do this, unlearn the bad behaviors and tactics and techniques, reteach and relearn the best practice behavior and techniques, and do it all in the Constitution in a way that complies with a consent decree, while saying we're doing it because it's the right thing to do. We're, doing, we're not doing it because the consent decree makes us. Right. And what would you say to parents and, and others uh, living in a city who are, are hanging on and they want to see better days. Um, give us a closing bite of, of your message to them, uh, what you're seeing behind the scenes that can give us hope that we're, because we talked about the plan, we talked about GVRS and the different strategies, things are going to be better moving forward. Well, better days are coming. The department has already made major strides in reforming and doing a better job, more of that job in a better way. And we're now delivering police services in a way that uses much less force. We're getting fewer complaints. And so the citizenry is not complaining as much, and, and, and that's a good thing. We need to do more of that. Better days are coming. There are more people, as I introduced uh, myself to a new recruit class, you should see the number of people from the city of Baltimore and from around this area who signed up to join the Baltimore Police Department, who at one time people would think was not worth joining. And now we have people from the city and people from around the country coming in to move into the city to join this, the police department, because they see the change. Better days are coming because there's always hope. And I want to give the, you, the residents, and visitors of Baltimore, the department you pay for, that you deserve, and that you expect. Yeah, and I'll say this because you can't. Our elected officials who want to badmouth the police every time they get a chance aren't helping with recruiting. They're only making the problem worse. And as Mayor Cantrell mentioned down in New Orleans, the new breed of officers aren't the officers that got us in the consent decree. So as we hire more and recruit more, we're trying to recruit those officers who are going to do the job in the constitutional way that they're supposed to. So if you're an elected official and you know who you are, who wanted to badmouth the police department day in and day out to the citizens of Baltimore, how the heck do you think we're going to get officers that way? So try to do better and just do better. So. Commissioner Harrison, thank you. We could talk for, for days and days on end because there's so much more to get into, but we scratched the surface of a lot of different things, and I think that the people have a better understanding of what the consent decree actually is and what it does. GVRS, the Group Violence Reduction Strategy, of course, and the daily day-to-day -day plan to address the cells in this area. So thank you very much for uh, being here. Thank you, TJ. I always look forward. Let me know when you'd like to do this again. I appreciate it. And uh, thank all of you for tuning in to this special series of uh, To Be More podcasts. You can, of course, find us where podcasts are located and watch the video on YouTube, WMAR2 News Baltimore. Thank you very much, and we will see you next time.